Our text this morning comes from uh, the epistle to the Ephesians and uh, chapter 6. Beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. Stop just there, I think. Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us from your word and that you would make your book live for us. We are coming to understand, Lord, where the battle is. And the battle for the hearts and minds of men and women does not come at the natural level. It comes at the supernatural level. It comes at the spiritual level. And so we must use spiritual tools and spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual war and solve spiritual problems. And you're the only one that can do that. So send your spirit and work through us now. And we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, he calls them. That's the old way of saying demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors, says Lewis. And he is, of course, correct. We must take the existence and the power and the influence of Satan and his angels seriously. We must factor their activity into our understanding of our world and help us to see why life goes on as it does in so many places and is such an unmitigated disaster and a tragedy worldwide. But the only thing more prone to fascination and obsession among Bible-believing Christians than sermons about the end times is sermons about Satan and the demonic. It's, uh, it's very sort of sensationalistic for a lot of people, and it, and it can be quite inappropriate from time to time. The most practical course of action, then, is to learn what the Bible says, to think carefully about it, to take appropriate action, but not to go beyond Scripture, and just to give it the weight that Scripture gives it, but see it in light of all of the other things that Scripture teaches us. This passage in Ephesians is a key text. Not only does it give us information about Satan, it also teaches us 
the basics of how to defend ourselves when we are attacked spiritually, which we will be and are on a daily basis, whether we understand it or not, and how to attack Satan's works when Jesus leads us and tells us to do so. And so we're going to take this passage in four bites. This week, we're going to look at our real battle. Next week, we'll look at our real enemy. And then for the two weeks after that, we will learn about our weapons and our armor. Uh, just, I'm, I'm teaching a class right now on, uh, uh, on the Puritans, and, and I just want to mention, if you want a very detailed treatment of these issues, uh, you can look at a Puritan book by William Gurnall, G-U-R-N-A-L-L, called The Christian in Complete Armor, or The Christian's Complete Armor. What is our real battle? This passage tells us. And the first thing that I want you to see, that I want you to understand, is that there is a battle, and it is unavoidable. You are in the battle. Lots of Christians today don't understand that. They don't understand that a significant portion of the spiritual life is warfare. They don't get that there is a battle. If you belong to Jesus, you are a soldier in a war obeying your commander. If you are not training and engaging in that war, if you are just sort of wandering around on the battlefield in a daze picking flowers or something, you're not exempt from duty. You're not, it's not like you cease to be a soldier. What you are then is a bad soldier, and you will be regularly defeated, and that can be catastrophic for you and for your life. Now, what does this battle consist of? Well, there are, are several th uh, theaters, shall we say, of warfare. There are several theaters of spiritual warfare. And the first theater of spiritual warfare is for you, and in particular, primarily, for your mind. That's, the that's one of the biggest battles. That is probably the first and largest battle that you have to overcome, is the battle for your mind. Satan's main tools for dominating humanity are mental. They are ideas. Listen to Dallas Willard on this, who has thought more carefully about this than almost any modern person I know. Dallas writes this, one of the most powerful elements within the realm of our minds is that of ideas. Our ideas form the belief system upon which we base our actions and our decisions, and these in turn determine the trajectory of our lives. Living a life without lack involves recognizing the idea systems that govern the present age and its respective cultures, as well as those that constitute life away from God, and replacing them with the idea system that was embodied and taught by Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul warned us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. These higher level powers and forces are spiritual agencies that work with the idea systems of this world. These evil systems have been used to dominate humanity through fear and self-obsession, so that the uppermost thing filling our minds is likely to be ourselves. 
That is why Jesus' teachings emphasize the importance of death to self, of giving up your life and not seeking to save yourself. What does Jesus say about your life? If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But of course, that is what nearly everyone does, especially everyone who lives according to the ordinary fallen course of the world. They spend their whole earthly existence trying to save, enhance, and enrich their lives. Every conversion to saving faith in Christ Jesus is a supernatural event. It has to be a supernatural event because lost people apart from God who do not possess his spirit are blinded by the God of this world. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 4. Verses 3 and 4, they are blinded by the God of this world. If our gospel is veiled, writes Paul, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The only way a lost sinner ever comes to Christ is for the Holy Spirit to do an an intervention. That's the only way it happens. God the Spirit must touch that lost sinner's mind and partially heal it. In that moment when he does that, their eyes are open spiritually, their ears are open spiritually, they clearly see Christ as beautiful and they see him as good, and they clearly see that in coming to him, they will have life eternal, And they desire in that moment, above all else, to be with him. And they come, and they are saved. And they are transferred in that moment from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the glorious Son. That's how the Bible talks about it in the book of Colossians. But that little slice of the mind that deals with coming to Christ is all that we can say at that point has been definitively healed. The new Christian is still in a great deal of mental darkness on just about everything else. And healing the rest of the mind is a slow, intentional, and sometimes laborious process. And it involves God working inside of you, and God works at his own pace even under what we would consider the best of circumstances. But unlike when God first heals you and heals that small part of your mind so that you can choose Christ, which he does unilaterally and without your help or your input, now God requires effort from you to meet his gracious work in you. So in other words, God heals your mind enough to come to saving faith in Jesus. And you're not in control of that process. It just does it. He's kind and he's good. And if he left you to yourself, you would never come to him. So he's given you that help. But that's just the beginning. Because from then on, your mind still needs further healing. It still needs further correction. You need to replace this world's ideas and its doctrines of demons, as James says, with the doctrines of God and with the things that God taught in the scriptures. And that, God wants you to participate in. So he jumpstarts you to get the motor running, but then he wants you to put on the gas and put it into gear. The healing of the rest of your mind 
is the main goal of the Christian life. Because if you get that right, it will cause other things to unfold correctly on down the line. And if you get it wrong, it will cause things to unfold incorrectly down the line. So in other words, God doesn't do it for you. He'll help you, and he'll help you greatly, but he requires your willing, disciplined, ongoing participation. And here, friends, is where Satan has his big opportunity in your life. Satan sits back and goes, okay, I couldn't do anything about God opening his eyes or her eyes, and they saw Christ as lovely and themselves as in need of him and lost and miserable, and they came to him with great joy. I couldn't do anything about that. But now God needs them to cooperate, and I can do a lot about that. And that's what he does then. He, he does a lot to keep you from accomplishing further growth in godliness. You see, he hates to lose. And when you came to Jesus Christ, he lost you. You were in his kingdom. He was your boss. You were serving him, worshiping him, even if you didn't know it. And then you left him and you came to Jesus. Oh, he doesn't like that. He wants revenge. He wants to punish you for leaving him. And he has many, many, many ways of doing so. Now, I can't name all of them, and I won't try this morning, but let's name a few of them, especially the ones that bedevil us sort of at the front of the journey. He wants to keep you a spiritual toddler, wandering around church in your diapers, crying and sucking on your bottle and making messes. How does he do this? Well, number one, he strives to keep you ignorant of God's truth. He strives to keep you ignorant. If you do not know how to correctly proceed in Christian growth and formation because you are ignorant of the facts of what needs to be done, you will not proceed because you won't know what to do. And so Satan will use assets that he has in place to try and minimize your opportunities to learn what you need to know in order to do your part. And so he has a million ways he can do this. For instance, he will play on your pride and your intellectual conceit so that you won't come into an environment where you might encounter these things from a posture of humble receptiveness. You'll say, I'm just too smart for these people and this teaching and this place. Or he'll convince you that you are unique and therefore you need to find your own unique path as you blaze your way heavenward. Jesus said, well, no, it's a very narrow, very straight path, didn't he? And there are people today who are like, you got to go your own way and do your own thing and find your own road and all these things. Jesus is like, don't go find your own road. That's the way to destruction. Find this narrow path. Ask for the old ways and you'll find rest for your souls. So he will do things like pray on your pride or he'll convince you that uh, uh, you should go to a liberal church or to a, a place where um, the, the main emphasis on things is, you know, really cool music, but no substantial teaching. Or he'll tire your body out with distractions. 
So you just don't go to church at all. Anything to keep you away from the place where you might find information that would help you proceed. He'll convince you that the Bible is too hard to understand, so you shouldn't try. Or he'll convince you that you totally understand the Bible when you actually don't, and you'll mislead yourself that way. Jesus tells us very plainly that the devil has his agents in every congregation in the world. That's what it says in Matthew 13 in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. The weeds are planted by an enemy and grow up next to God's wheat, and these people are double agents. They are, uh, they are covert operators, if you like, for the devil in God's church. And so if the pastor does understand this issue thoroughly and could teach on it in such a way that you could understand it and know what to do and benefit from it. And frankly, there are a lot of pastors who don't know how to go about this themselves. It's not something you're taught in seminary, even the best of seminaries. You're taught many things. I, I, I was even taught clergy tax law, but nobody ever taught me how to go from A to B to C in the Christian life and grow in such a way that I was becoming less enamored with sin and more enamored with holiness. Nobody told me how to do that. I went to three different seminaries. I went to a liberal one, Presbyterian one. I went to a Baptist one that was not liberal at all. And, and I, I even did a semester at a Benedictine monastery and seminary with a bunch of monks. Nobody told me what to do. I had to go find this on my own. So there's a lot of pastors that, that don't know what to do because they've never been taught. And so, so if you happen to find one, then Satan will use his prepositioned assets in that congregation to attack and to distract and to muzzle that pastor. And so maybe the weeds pop up and attack the pastor. Or maybe they criticize and sow doubt and dissension quietly behind the scenes. Well, he doesn't need to just rely on people. You know, he, he can glitch the sound system so that you don't hear. Or he can cause a child to have a fit in the middle of worship so that you're distracted. I will always remember when, when I preached on Satan at my congregation in Sturgis, and we had a bunch of kids under the age of two, and we did not do children's church. They were with us in church. We had a cry room. We didn't even have that to begin with, but we had a cry room, and and. We just expected the kids to be in church, and we made provisions for them to keep busy when they were little, and, but it was noisy from time to time. And, and then we had a young man who was autistic and nonverbal and not potty trained, and for some reason my voice would get him very excited, and he'd start hooting and hollering and thumping on the pews and things like that, and so it was, that was a distraction as well. And I, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, Please do not let the devil use our children to distract us this morning while we are teaching about him. And, and some parents got very uh, unhappy. You, my, little, my little Benji would be a tool of the devil. <laughs> yeah, your little Benji is actually a tool of the devil more than you think. But <laughs> Putting your parenting skills aside, well, they were, they were quite offended, some, some were. But the interesting thing was, as the service progressed, it was dead quiet. And, and everything went off without a hitch. There wasn't a cry, there wasn't a sound. Trevor didn't hoot and holler and thump the pews. Everything was quiet. 
And at the end of it, people came up to me and said, did you hear that? And I said, no. And they said, we didn't either. <laughs> and they realized, yeah, Satan can give my child a gas bubble. Satan can wind him up. Satan absolutely can do that. If it benefits him and it causes the, the gospel to be less clearly heard, yeah, he'll do that. Satan will also do things like keep you from praying. He'll make you sleepy. It's amazing. I'm an insomniac from the word go until I start praying. Man, I can be out like a light in five minutes if I start praying. So he'll do that to you, or he'll nudge your mind so that it wanders. I, I, uh, I, I have a, a lot of times when I pray, at least I used to, uh, I'd, I'd write it out in a journal. I'd write God a letter uh, every day because my mind is so active. It reminds me of a, a monkey in the forest in South Asia, just jumping from tree to tree, chattering all the time. And it's so hard for me to just focus down. Satan's, I'm sure there's biology in that, but Satan's in that too. He'll, he'll uh, convince you that wrong ideas about prayer are actually correct. Uh, I, this is very common. If you don't know what you're doing and don't have a clear understanding of what you're doing and you think you do and you go charging off because you think you understand something you don't understand, you'll end up doing it wrong and, and Satan benefits. I, I know that when I became a Calvinist, my prayer life tanked. And the reason it tanked is very simple. It's because I wrongly absorbed the idea that God was going to do whatever he was going to do whether I prayed or not. Or to put it another way, that nothing happens in response to our prayers that wouldn't have happened anyway, whether we prayed or not. That, that God doesn't act to answer our prayers in ways that he wouldn't have acted without our prayers because God is sovereign and he freely decrees uh, all things from before the foundation of the world and he's not going to diminish his sovereignty by responding to a lowly ball of mud like me and doing something in response to me that he wouldn't have done otherwise. And so the bulk of my prayers became about asking God to put me in a frame of heart where I could quietly accept whatever God had already decided to do. And uh, the, the, the God, if I'd like this to happen, uh, I'd like this to happen if it be thy will type of prayers. And that, that's what I prayed like when I bothered to pray. Because I, I, frankly, I, I didn't a lot, not in the way of prayers of supplication. It was kind of like I had this idea in my mind where I would say, God, I'd like a piece of cake if it be thy will, but if not, just help me to be happy with the Brussels sprouts that you're probably going to give me anyway, right? And that's Calvinism, I said to myself. I'm a Calvinist, and that's Calvinism. The only problem is it's not Calvinism at all. Calvin taught no such thing about prayer. And I challenge you to search the scriptures on prayer and just see if they offer any support for that view. There are hundreds and hundreds of teachings about prayer in the scriptures, and the if it be thy will prayer was only one, just once. 
And it was in a highly, highly unique situation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prayed, Father, I don't want to go to the cross. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now, there's a great deal of validity in the idea that we should always be in a quiet and confident and submissive frame of heart so that if God says no to our prayers, we're not completely flummoxed and undone. But that one passage does not remotely contain all of the teachings on prayer. You see, what I was suffering from was not a Calvinistic view of prayer. It was an adolescent understanding of God's sovereignty a partially accurate and therefore inaccurate view of God's sovereignty. And so I didn't pray because I misunderstood prayer and I misunderstood God's sovereignty. And as God opened my eyes to my error and sent me to the scriptures for more information, I realized that I needed to grow beyond my adolescence. You know how adolescents are that I know all about it, but I don't really know anything. We all go through that stage. We go through it physically. We go through it theologically. And, and so I needed to grow beyond that to a more sophisticated and a more accurate understanding of the relationship between my prayers and God's sovereignty. Either that or I needed to just become like a little child and uh, one who goes quietly and confidently to, to my heavenly father and asks him for what I want, like Jesus plainly said to do. Either one of those would work. I could either get more sophisticated and understand it better, or I could just be like a little child. Either one would work. I, I could just take James 4 at face value when it says, you have not because you ask not. And not try and turn it into something that says, you have not because God ordained that you would have not from before the foundation of the world, and there's nothing whatsoever that you can do about it or that God will do about it. And incidentally, I think more than a few of you are under the sway of that same error because it's a very common one to one degree or another. You know, it's interesting to me. I love going up to Parkside. I've loved going up to Parkside since 20 years ago. And I love the bookstore up there. If you haven't been to Parkside Church, Alistair Beck's Church, it's just an hour away. They have a bookstore there and it is wonderful. It's tiny, but it's wonderful. And then every May during their pastor's conferences, Alistair will bring in a guy who's a specialist dealer in used and rare books, theological books. And so then it gets even more interesting and wonderful. But you know, the last time I was up there, I was like, I'm going to be teaching on prayer soon. I'd like some good, uh, good stuff on prayer. And so I went to that bookstore thinking, let me help. There's got to be some good books on prayer here. It was interesting. There was almost nothing on prayer. Nothing. Now, I know Alistair is a man of prayer. I know he doesn't hold to this error, but it, it's interesting that whoever buys the books, they don't think that prayer is that important. There was a section, and there was like two books in that section. One of them was just a book of Puritan prayers. So, so I, I'm forced to, to think that it's probably more common than I thought that people suffer from this. And, and so that's why I've begun praying publicly that God would bring uh, 300 people here to Tabernacle. I, I'm doing it as a, as a kind of an experiment. I'm venturing on God in doing that. I'm, I'm placing myself and my reputation in his hands, whatever is left of my reputation, uh, because I want to see God do something that only God could do in response to the simple, sincere, 
persistent prayers of his people. I'm taking a risk. I'm like, God, I'm going to do this, and I hope you answer me. I think you will. I think you want to show your people something, and he might answer me and give me 500 people. And we'll have to figure out what to do with all of them, right? But he might, and he might give 297. That'd be all right, too. But, but I, I just want him to move. I, I, along with that, I understand that I need to do my utmost to keep my ego and my vainglorious pride out of the mix. And, and, and understand that it's in conjunction with a lot of other prayers and labors that Tabernacle would be the kind of church that could appropriately teach people how to become followers of Christ who want to live all of their lives in reference to God, so that we don't just have 300 people hanging out at the cool church enjoying the party. I don't want a crowd. I want a congregation. But even more than that, I want us all, all of us, to see God show up and to bust through all of Satan's cobwebs of lies and to teach us about the glorious privilege and the glorious power of prayer in an organic natural, experiential way. I want you to get excited about prayer and the good things that might be wrought through prayer and the patient application of prayer to all of the problems that face us. And I don't want to harangue you and guilt you into coming a couple of times to a prayer meeting and then have you fade away, which by the way, we've increased the prayer meeting. It is now every Thursday. We're just going to meet every Thursday and pray. I, I, so you're invited, but I'm not going to harangue you about it. You, here's what I want. I want you to see prayer in such a, a powerful way, in such a way that just tickles your heart, that you are lining up in the parking lot waiting for me to get here and unlock the door to come to the prayer meeting. Because you know that God moves when you're here praying, and you want to see him move. That's why I'm praying for 300. That's why I'm inviting you to join me. So, so back to Satan. All of this to say that Satan has a multitude of strategies to keep you ignorant of basic, necessary information without which you cannot proceed in any kind of an intelligent way. Information that God wants you to have. But if he can't keep you ignorant... In other words, if you get access to that information anyway, then Satan has a backup strategy that's just as effective. Because once you've got the information, that's only the first step, right? You have to put that information into practice. You have to begin to embody it and live it out. And that's where his next attack is going to be. So he'll keep you distracted. You'll know that prayer is vital and it's effective, but you still won't pray. You still won't pray because you stayed up too late last night playing Candy Crush and couldn't get up early enough in the morning to do it. You'll still not pray because you're too busy and there's just too much going on. You'll, stop, you, you, you'll not pray because seemingly urgent things pop up and demand your attention over and over and over again and you can't seem to say no and it's keeping you from your Bible. But worldly pleasures will distract you. Entertainments and activities will get the best of your time and the best of your attention. Your kids and their activities, your grandkids and their activities. I mean, hey, you got to show up to all of those. I mean, your kid could be the next Patrick Mahomes. 
He could be the next Joe Burrow. And, and it's totally worth it to rearrange the whole family's life around a sport, isn't it? It's not. It's not. Not where eternal things are concerned for you and for your family. One of Satan's most effective tools of distraction in the last 20 or 30 years has been technology. It's interesting what's happened. The average attention span, there are scientific studies on this, the average attention span has been so reduced that now we can only center down on one thing for about 45 seconds at a time. Computers and tablets and smartphones are actually rewiring our brains and not in a way that tends towards godliness not in a way that tends towards spiritual development of any sort. You see, one of the things that God designed us for is that we need long stretches of silence with the Lord in order to grow spiritually. And your smartphone is probably interfering with that natural process. And Satan laughs. It's his tool. There's also a wider scope of Satan's activities. He not only has small less important demons that are attending to each of us as individuals. And by the way, you can bet that one of the reasons I love the story about Elisha and the, the armies of the Lord is because it teaches us what Paul says didactically, that the spiritual world around us, which is very near, you don't, heaven, we think the word heaven, it's like way up there, a long way far off, you know, past the solar system, past Pluto or something. No, no, there were three heavens in the Jewish understanding. There was the first heaven, which is just the atmosphere around us. The, the birds fly in that heaven. Then there was the canopy of the stars, and that's where the sun and the moon hang out, the greater and the lesser light. And then there was the, the throne room of God, the third heaven. And so Paul talks about, in 2 Corinthians, I know a man that was taken up into the third heaven. Okay. And that's, that means he was face-to-face -face in the throne room of God. But, but Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. So this first heaven, that's his territory. That's where he hangs out. Now, God has his angels here too, but this is his territory. And, and you know, it's interesting. I've, I've had people tell me, I don't think a demon could get into church, you know, because it's such a holy place. I, I beg to differ. Can, let me ask you this. Can a bad person get into a Bible-believing church? Can they walk through the door and sit down and cause trouble? So who's stronger, a bad person or a bad angel? There's nothing keeping them out. Now, we can make it as noxious as possible for them to be here by our joy and, our, and the power of the Holy Spirit and our, our enjoyment of, of God and His things and, and our singing and our praying, but they're here. They're listening. They're watching you. They're doing everything they can to keep you. you I suspect, uh, it's pretty clear from Scripture that we all at least have one guardian angel. I suspect that we probably also each have a guardian demon or two. I can't prove that from Scripture, but I suspect that it's true. So he's, he's going to do that. He, he's going uh, to exert control where he can. But, but he doesn't just have his little, you know, his little guys following us around. He's got bigger, more important, more powerful ones that are doing other things in our world. 
and he controls, for instance, the university systems from which uh, our most destructive ideas in our culture for the last 200 years have all emanated from. He controls occultists and pagans. You know, it's interesting, I, I, I read widely, and uh, one Christian author that I read, um, uh, I, I read every day, his name's Rod Dreher, he's a very interesting man. And he gets readers from all over the world, and there was this one guy that he talked with who lived in London, and he said, you know, I'm the only Christian in my office. But the interesting thing is, all the people that aren't Christians that are my age, they're not nuns. They're, they're not people who don't have any spiritual beliefs. They're all occultists. They're pagans. They're reverting. They're studying witchcraft. They're, wor they're literally worshiping the devil. Because, and they just think the devil is just an embodiment of our own will to, to you know, exert our, our will in the world and all that. So he's a symbol. He's not real. But they're worshiping the devil. And that's the environment in which we live. And, and those ideas now are becoming increasingly popular and attractive again amongst lost people. Well, Satan's in charge of all that. He's in, he's in charge of the followers of false religions. He controls the money and the banking industries. He owns Facebook and Instagram. He controls nations and worldly seats of power. And he uses all of those assets to try and slow and to damage the prospects of God's people and God's projects in the world. And the damage that he does is real. And it matters. And much of it is actually preventable if the people of God will become what we're supposed to be and begin once again to shoulder the burdens that Christ has laid upon us. But it won't happen if we place our confidence in programs or we're, if we're very sure that our problems can be solved by politicians. If we just elect the right one, then everything will be all right again. Or, or, or in our own ability to make people do what we think is best. No, 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 no. It's interesting to me, I, a number of times, I mean, it happens over and over again. You have somebody who's, who's a, a lively, faithful Christian, a faithful churchgoer, and they're in a close relationship with somebody who's completely disinterested in spiritual things. It might be a husband, might be a wife, might be a child, might be a parent, but they want good things for that person. They want that person to be saved. And, and one of the things that they will inevitably do is try and bring them to church. And then you watch and they're like, I hope he doesn't talk to that person. They're crazy. And, and I hope the pastor doesn't preach on money because he hates that. And, and I hope the music isn't too corny because he hates that. And this, that, and the other thing. And, and, you know, and it's like they think that the battle for that person's soul is really at that level. They can't encounter anything they don't like in the church, or they just won't want Jesus. No, they don't want Jesus because they're lost. Now, the church can make it worse, or the church can be an occasion for the right kind of offense, or the church can be the occasion for no offense, and, and we can conduct ourselves in a way that providentially no stumbling blocks are laid in front of that person. It doesn't matter, because that's not where the battle is. The battle is spiritual. It's for their soul. And you're not going to change that by nagging them or trying to manipulate them or try and put them in places where things might happen and then watching real carefully to see if they do. None of that really is going to produce any fruit at all. It, well, it will. It'll frustrate them. 
because they begin to see themselves as your project and not a person in their own right. They, I want you to decide certain things. And darn it, I'm going to do everything I can to make you decide that. I'm going to pressure you. And they know, and they don't like it. Leave them alone. Pray. Pray. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ, open their eyes. Open their eyes, Jesus. That's the only thing that will help. Satan laughs if you do anything else. Because he's right there. He's like, yeah, come up with another strategy to pummel her into submission. That'll do it. Get in another argument with her about the sufficiency of Scripture or something like that, you know, or how wrong this group is or that group is, because that'll totally do it. No, it won't. That will totally make it worse. Loved ones, we don't place our confidence in programs. We don't place our confidence in politicians. We don't place our confidence in our own abilities. No, no, no. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And the weapons of our warfare are spiritual weapons. We are in a battle, but our battle is not with the people who are right in front of us. It's not. Even the ones that hate us. Even the ones that, that think that we're bad and that we're upholding a bad system of ideas that hurts people and they're dedicated to tearing Christianity down. And there's a bunch of those. Not as many in Ohio as there are in like California or New York. There's a bunch of them. And they're in important places. And they hate what you believe. That's not our enemy. They are not our enemy. It's one of the reasons why we can love them. It's because we look at them and we say, oh my gosh, I was so in the same place you were once. I was without God and without hope in the world. I hated him. I wanted nothing to do with him. And then all of a sudden, he changed me. And he saved me. Loved ones, that's where the battle is. Our weapons are spiritual weapons, and we must learn how to use them. And we must also learn where the true battlefields are, and then we must go there intelligently, calmly, and begin to wage war as Christ directs. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. For you are my rock and my redeemer. Lord, if there's anything said today which is helpful and good, cause it to be remembered. If there's anything that's said today that was in error or that was bad, cause it to be quickly forgotten. In Jesus' name.